Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Now, if you've seen the title of this podcast, you're thinking, wow, how is that possible? But it is, and we delve into just how the guys have purchased around 200 properties in two and a half years, and are doing a commercial conversion, and have a building business, construction business. Now, you know, the scale at which you can grow, and actually how you grow is certainly different to buying a single let here and there. There's less competition at this level, but of course, it is more complex, and it requires much larger chunks of money up front, and it doesn't always uh, happen like a BRR, which... For a lot of us using investor funds, it's kind of what we have to be doing. But nonetheless, a very interesting podcast and a look at some real quick growing at scale business and also how things are kind of systemized and processed and outsourcing. Because you might be thinking, oh, bloody 200 properties, that's 200 boilers. You know, that's 200 issues that could go wrong. But we talk about how they manage that as well. So if you haven't already, please order a copy of my book. And if you haven't, you haven't left a review, which probably 900 of you haven't, um, get on Amazon and leave me a review. And if you have, then thank you. I appreciate you. You loyal. You smart. Alex and Laurie, welcome to the Tedge Talks podcast. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this podcast because looking at our discussions before before we're kind of recording this, there's so many topics here that we can talk about that you have done and are doing well. And I know we're going to interest the listeners. But before we get into your around 200 property portfolio, just to tease the listeners of what we're going to talk about and buying portfolios and talking about commercial to resi and having a building company, take a deep breath. Before we get into all of that good stuff, could you maybe tell the listeners, you know, what you were both doing before property and then maybe how you got started in property and how you met each other? Sure. So we're actually both still in full-time employment. You may not have been aware yourself, but yeah, we're both in oil and gas. Um, I, Laurie, uh, work for an Italian manufacturing company of steel uh, pressure piping products. Um, Alex works for a coating company of the, the pipeline. So we're currently doing all of this as we are uh, full-time employed, granted uh, getting away with murder. And, uh, you know, we're not sure how long that's uh, going to continue for. <laughs> uh, probably not much longer, given that we've now got our own office and, and we're very active on social media. But yeah, back in the day around, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I got my first buy to let just across the road from where I used to live. Um, I think it was 2009, 10, something like that. And the property had been on the market for a while. Um, I just went over and knocked the door and said, look, I'm interested to buy if you're looking to sell. Made a cheeky offer. They told me to piss off. Um, but then about another kind of three to six months later, uh, the guy turned up at the door and said, okay, fine. You know, it's still not moved. We'll, we'll sell it, you know. So, yeah, I ended up building up maybe three properties, three buy-to-let properties, all in the same estate where I used to live. But, you know, at the time, we never had any strategy or systems or processes or, or vision, really, you know. It was just the case that property seemed a, a good place to, to put your money. Naturally, the property prices kind of increased in time. So when I went to take out a new mortgage, there was a bit of equity release there. 
Um, and that's what allowed me to go from, you know, kind of one by to let to three. But, you know, that took me about 10 years. So that, that was really how, how I got started. Um, yeah, you know, we've, we've been mates from, from school as well. You know, we're both the same age. We were at the same high school. We were mates after that as well. I'll let Alex tell his own startup story as well. Yeah, so for me, my first bite came from the fact that, you know, I've been traveling within the oil and gas industry for the last 14 years. I've not really been at home. Um, I had a house that I was staying in for a while, but I ended up moving to Russia. So uh, I rented it out. And, you know, when I came back, I just bought myself another flat, kept that rented. It was a four bedroom house. It was about 250K, really terrible investment the way that we look at it now. But yeah, just kind of fell into my first bite leg, but always really interested in, in what property could do. And, and ultimately, I think um, Laurie and I both got to a stage maybe around about three years ago where we were kind of getting to a point where we wanted to settle down, have a family. And the lifestyle that both of our jobs uh, created for us, you know, we were always on the road. I spent most of my, my time out of the country. You know, I was in Russia for four years, Azerbaijan for four years, uh, a couple of years in Norway. And it was, a, it was a great life, but, you know, very much dictated to by a company. And, and we wanted that level of, of freedom that having your own business could create. And, and property seemed like the natural way to do that. And really, uh, him and I being friends, kind of batting back, back and forward ideas. We were going through sort of our education and property at the same time. We just naturally came together over time and we stumbled into our first deal. I was about to get married, actually. And it was the week before my wedding. Um, a deal, a great deal came up. We managed to secure uh, one of these four in a block ex-local authority flats, I got the lead. I said to Laurie, look, I don't have time to do anything with this. I'm about to get married. He went, negotiated it, done a great deal. We got it for 25K, I think, in the end. And that was really the start of it. We, we actually managed to secure our first private investor for that deal on my wedding day, which, uh, yeah, my wife doesn't like that story too much. But, um, yeah, that's how it started. And, and we just kept batting back and forward ideas and, and and it just became you know to a point where we were able to do much more together than than we were ever managing to achieve you know uh, as as individuals so that's really where our business came about wow i think also just just to mention uh, yeah i can't remember maybe about three years ago now these three bite lets that i had i had the, i'd actually sold them uh because i was looking to get out of bite let because you know they changed all the tax rules and it wasn't as attractive anymore and stuff you know and it was really, as Alex says, from kind of talking about different ideas with each other, it was a kind of role reversal. You know, I, I sold them and then decided that I, I didn't want to get out of buy a let. You know, we, we wanted to get in it uh, in a big, big way. Uh, we saw the value of working together. And just through sharing in these ideas and experiences, that's really led us to where we are now. And working full part-time, you know, with <laughs> what you've done is hard. Working full-time... Is, you know, I just can't even imagine it. Like, is it, you know, do you both enjoy your jobs or is there another reason that you haven't gone all in to property? Because as a business, you've gone all in in what you've done. Yeah. Why do you still have jobs? I guess we, 
why would we throw away that additional income when we have it? And it means that, you know, we don't have to extract cash from the business yet. And again, that, that's been great to allow us to scale. You know, it'd be a very different journey if we did, you know, kind of uh, burn the ships and, and go all in uh, guns blazing from the start. It's actually a really nice transition. And um, yeah, we're really just waiting to be kind of, you know, found out uh, officially. <laughs> but I would definitely recommend that to anyone as well. You know, why throw away your income if you can do both? I think as well, you know, you get a lot of these property courses that will talk to you and, and they'll say you can be financially free within three months and, you know, property is the best tool to do that, etc. And, and the reality is for many people, even if they go down the sourcing route and then they're successful at it and they do uh, manage to create an income that replaces their day job, if they then want to start buying property down the line, getting mortgages, etc. Uh, as buy-to-let, it's really tough without an income. You know, so we were we never wanted to uh, to burn our bridges too early. But another part of it, you know, and, and this is very prevalent throughout all our businesses, is we, we're very keen to systemize and process every. You know, systems and processes are critical to everything that we do, and we've managed to do that with almost all of our businesses. Our, our buy-to-let is extremely passive. The way that we've we've managed to systemize it, which has allowed us to grow other parts of our business and still retain our day jobs. Even in my day job, I, you know, I've got it to a level where it's fairly systemized and I don't need to spend as much time in terms of, you know, weekly hours to create that income. And, and it's always just a, you know, value proposition, really looking at how much uh, money you can bring in for any activity that you're doing and, and whether or not that's, that's value added or, you know, whether or not you're detracting from, from the business by not giving it hundred percent of your focus. And, and that's really where we're at now. We're kind of at a stage where we, the business has grown so large that we, we really need to focus our time on it. Mm. I mean that, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Uh, it, it's a logical and very sensible thing to do, which, yeah, like you said, a lot of trainers, etc., kind of, you know, yeah, they make it sound a lot easier and, and maybe encourage you to leave earlier when actually, yeah, what you said makes total sense. So, systemizing and that's definitely something i want to talk about you know how you manage the portfolio and now you've built it so quickly but you know let's talk about building the actual buy to let portfolio firstly so in the last two and a half years you've gone from i assume a couple or no properties to 200 properties yeah that is crazy growth that is incredibly quick um and of course brings a thousand and one different challenges I mean, and again, this is a really broad question, but I suppose the kind of question is how? How have you grown so quickly and at such scale? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You know, we, we had a kind of realization uh, probably about a year ago, maybe. I think it was the start of last year. And um, our setup is that I, I, Laurie, I'm the one with the radical ideas and I put these crazy goals and objectives on us, you know, and then Alex kind of reins me in a little bit, but then tries to figure out a way of, yeah, how we can maybe get there or, or you know, certainly moving, moving towards those types of crazy goals. And I think it was January last year, you know, I was writing up stuff on my vision board and I'd written up... Uh, target of trying to get to 100 units um, and I think at the time we only had about what 30 or something uh, 35 something like that which was you know 35 after the first kind of year or so is also decent but it was like well you know the target at 100 wasn't really pushing us to take actions to achieve massive scale and that's really what we were wanting to go after so 
I changed the target from 100 properties to 300 properties and then made us think a little bit differently. You know, how are we going to get to 300 properties in the next year? And that, that was the target. So even although we didn't do it, yeah, we, we have grown massively and, and it's been great. But that target forced us to think differently. It forced us to take different actions. It forced us to realize that if we had any chance of this, we had to start going after portfolios, you know, because it was it was kind of rapid scale um, if we could find out uh, how to how to do that. So um, there's been a combination of a lot of different things. You know, we still buy single units. Uh, you know, we're, we're buying more kind of multi-units, uh, smaller portfolios, but we're also going after um, bigger portfolios. And it's the combination of bringing all these things together that's allowed us to, to scale like that. But, you know, I, th- I think one of the other key things is uh, our, our focus on private investment. Um, our focus on uh, working very closely with our JV partners, which we have uh, maybe four or five of now, you know, and um, bringing all these different things together is, is really what's allowed us to scale so quickly. Mm. So buying portfolios. So essentially, is that, you know, or would you say that's kind of the only or kind of the the most efficient way to scale buy to lets at speed because you know alternatively you buy one two three four you know is portfolios for anyone listening is that the way to grow this quickly so we've kind of come up with our own structural view of of how you know a large property investment business grows so we see that first phase of buying individual properties you know you do your brrr strategy you refinance them after six months, pull your money out, buy another one, etc. That we classify as sort of phase one of development where it can be very frustrating, particularly on the finance side, because you've got all these different individual lenders with their individual criteria. You know, they don't like ex local authority. They don't like more than four in a block. You know, they don't like this. They don't like that. They don't like certain types of construction, etc. You know, the, the, the sort of the issues that you have to deal with with standard lending. And that was a big factor of our first year that really slowed us down. First of all, having to wait six months. Secondly, you know, constantly having a fight to find a finance option. It's even worse in Scotland, you know, because there's, there's less lenders for buy to let, uh, certainly through limited companies. So that's sort of the phase one development side. And then we quickly realized after our first portfolio purchase, there's a second phase where you have a much more uh, relationship-based dealings with the bank. So we have one bank that fundamentally backs us. It's actually two. The other one is more for acquisition. But you know, for the full finance of our portfolio now is with one bank, and we have a very close relationship with them. So that that has eliminated, one, the six-month waiting, and two, it's eliminated a lot of those criteria restrictions that we had on our, our investment. So... You know, now that we're in that stage and, and we have the capabilities to buy, and, and I'm not saying you know phase one is it's a necessary thing to go through. You have to develop that credibility, but for us, moving on to phase two is the most important thing to get away from those restrictions that ultimately are slowing your growth. And since we've moved on to phase two, you know the growth that's really where growth's come from. Portfolio deals are a completely different dynamic. Your standard deals, first of all, I'd say the negotiation of them is easier. You're dealing with other investors. You're not buying from an individual. You're buying from a property investor already. So there's kind of a preset expectation that you're going to get some sort of deal because we're all investors. We all like deals. Moreover, the valuation of portfolios helps with the negotiation because 
you know, if you look at portfolio valuation, there's normally a 90 day or 180 day valuation. So for instance, if you had to sell that portfolio or the bank had to sell it within that restricted time period, there would normally be about a 20% discount on the portfolio. So that gives you a really good negotiating start with anybody that you're trying to buy a portfolio off of because their 90-day valuation is going to be at least 20% of the aggregate market value of that portfolio. So again, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the negotiation of them is easier. The financing long-term becomes easier because it becomes a relationship with your bank. So, and obviously you're getting day one cash flow as well because, you, you know, you're buying with uh, the tenants in situ. Yeah, I think although we are, you know, we're, we're buying portfolios, but I mentioned earlier we're also still buying the single units. So again, it's it's like combining uh, all that experience together, and uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been amazing really to to look back and see the growth now. Yeah, and and it's interesting. The finance is kind of has such a sort of big impact, and I suppose limiting it's a limiting factor in this growth. Yeah, I've absolutely seen the same thing on the one, you know, one by one different lenders, all the rubbish they come out with, they come out with the day before completion. It's just, you know, it's a pain when you're trying to grow quickly and bike lets are, you know, slower and they do cash flow less. So without that speed, you know, I think it, it becomes very difficult. So with portfolios, generally, you don't tend to see them on right move. You don't tend to see them I mean, you do see them in auctions every now and then, but generally they're not, as far as I know, in the public eye as much as yeah. anything else. So how can the listeners find portfolios to buy? Well, how do we find portfolios to buy as well? You know, <laughs> I guess it's just, you know, we're, we're constantly looking around online. We're talking to people. A, a big thing about what we do is social media now, you know, uh, we've got a presence on there. So people know we're serious and we're buying. And yeah, sometimes people come to us with, with opportunities, but to try and find them can be challenging. You know, it's, it's not every day you, you know, you come up against a portfolio deal. You know, you might get a single unit to buy every day of the week, but. Really, we are trying to target the owners uh, directly, engage in some kind of dialogue um, and just see if anybody out there is looking to sell. And if they are, yeah, we, we're just going to try and meet them and talk with them. And I think, though, actually, if I remember right, and I'm, I'm going from memory here now, but we've probably had about maybe 20 opportunities to, quote, port, uh, to buy portfolios from the start of this year. But again, it's not to say that, you know, it works for both us and the seller. But really dealing directly with the owners is, is where you want to get to. And so dealing, you're going direct to vendor, people know leaflets, Facebook ads, you know, whatever. They know kind of how to do that, I suppose. But is there a way to identify portfolio owners or is it a case of you just do direct to vendor generally and hope that some of them are portfolio owners? I think one of the important first steps with portfolios is generally it's companies that own them. So, you know, obviously there's a wealth of information on companies' house. So quite often it's just about getting an understanding of maybe one of the properties that may be in a portfolio and then it's easy to track back there between the title and company's house, who owns it and, and how many. You know, and then you can go on company's house and see the charges against it to see how many properties are within that portfolio or certainly how many have charges against them. So that can give you a really good uh, insight into it. You know, ultimately, we still deal with a lot of sourcers that bring us, you know, portfolio opportunities. So it's not it's not many people that are in a position to be able to buy portfolios. And we kind of found that, you know, because we publicized the, the first portfolio deal, 
which was uh, 83 properties we bought in uh, Lanarkshire. Since then, we've had so many more deals come to us because, you know, these sourcers that are aware of us, they get a portfolio opportunity and they've not got many directions to take that sort of deal. So, you know, getting ourselves out there and making sure people know that we are most definitely in the market and buying has, has seriously helped that. Do you find that there's less competition at that kind of level for portfolios compared to like the single lets? Yeah, I think there is, you know, and it's like, you know, the, the sourcers want the guys that are finding these types of opportunities, they want an easy life. You know, they don't want to be pissing about with people that might buy it. They want to be dealing with somebody that's serious. So, yeah, I mean, how many serious buyers are out there? And don't, don't get me wrong, we don't think we're the only ones or whatever, you know, but certainly it's a very different market. I mean, when you're dealing, firstly, when you're dealing on the open market, looking, you know, everybody's scratching about, especially right now, you know, there's, there's crazy amounts of viewings taking place. We don't look on the open market at all anymore, in fact. Then you've got the kind of off-market single units that sourcers are trading on all the time, the auction houses and all this type of thing. But yeah, I mean, there's still tons of people going after these deals. So it is a very different dynamic. It does make it quote-unquote easier to deal. As Alex says, you know, you're, you're dealing investor to investor. You know, that if somebody's selling a portfolio of 20 units, then they've built up that experience over time. And yeah, it's a different completely different type of negotiation. It's a more kind of commercialized business to business type thing. Cause yeah, most usually these days, you know, it's companies that own the portfolios. So definitely a very different dynamic. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to, you know, these portfolios, you mentioned earlier, it's day one cash flow because they're all tenanted or mostly yeah. tenanted. So I suppose the question here is about kind of um, finance. So obviously with the BR, you know, you can use investor finance, put your money in, blah, 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 job done. You pull it out and you hopefully get most of it back. Um, Sometimes all of it, sometimes more. But that kind of makes sense because if an investor gives you the money, you can pay it all back at the end of X many months and it's clean cut and it's done. But with yours, I'm assuming because they're already tenanted, there isn't a huge value add and you're already buying them on a long-term product. So how do you fund them, I suppose? And is it a case of you put a deposit in and you leave the money in and you're happy with that because it's giving you a return? How does it? How is it structured in that sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not really... We've, we do different types of acquisition, I guess. You know, we can either do effectively a, a BRRR on, on steroids, you know, uh, or we can take a kind of longer term view. Um, sometimes there can be a, a mix, but ultimately it's all about creating the infinite returning asset, right? So, you know, no, no cash left in. But depending on the nature of the portfolio, you know, it might make more sense um, to acquire on a straight term loan, you say, with, with joint venture partnership and bank finance. The, the other part of that, you know, we're, we've got a live project just now, uh, where you know we were able to purchase it at discount, uh, but it needed a hell of a lot of work done. Uh, that's the one in Douglas. In fact, you've maybe seen that on social media, or some of your listeners have. But there were six units that were basically ready to go and rent, uh, which are now rented and were producing cash flow. They were empty at the time when we bought it, though. And there was another nine units that were part of that same portfolio that needed you know 100, 150 grand worth of work spent on them, you know, to to improve the condition. In fact, they were uninhabitable when we bought them. And then, you know, we've kind of got a mix. We're, we're in the middle of legals now on uh, our kind of latest deal, uh, which is due to conclude in the next kind of couple of weeks. And 
That acquisition is actually a kind of mixture of the two because there's some units that need the refurb uh, before you can get the increased value. There's other ones that we can't really do much and, and you know, they're part of the longer term view. So when you mix them together, yeah, I get, we, we don't really know that there's different scenarios, but yeah, sometimes there can be a mix as well, like, like our latest acquisition. Mm. And you mentioned before you had a, you bought an 83 unit portfolio. When it comes to due diligence on something like that, you know, for people who are listening have done a couple by to lets or a couple of flips, things like that. Is it a case of, you know, you are going to be spending multiples, multiples of hours analyzing each property individually, looking at the rental accounts? Like, is it really going through it as if you were buying a business like with a fine tooth comb to kind of understand everything and every level of it? Or is there a different type of due diligence you do at this level? Actually, you can buy the business. That that's one potential option when you're buying portfolios. If all of the the properties are um, you know within a company, you can buy the company itself. And sometimes that can be better from a stamp duty perspective, etc. But when usually when you've got this multiple dwellings relief, that that doesn't help you hugely. And when you buy a company, you buy it warts and all. So you know if there's if there's other issues with suppliers or dodgy deals or, or maybe some loans that went bad you're taking on all that, which really isn't preferable. So, you know, buying the properties themselves does eliminate a lot of due diligence that you would have to do if you, if you were buying a company. And generally, you tend to find that there's a level of concentricity with any portfolio, which means there's not a huge value in, in you know, being overly analytical on each individual property. You know, for instance, in Lanarkshire, there's maybe 30 properties that are within the same estate, all the same type of build, same type of flat, same layout, etc. So so we didn't, you know, we maybe viewed five or six of the, the 30. But we also knew what what the expectation was in terms of post-purchase investment with that portfolio. So we kind of felt like we were getting a good enough deal not to have to go in, you know, excruciating detail and view every every one of the 80, 82 properties. So, you know, I, th- I think you can do a level of sampling, especially when there's concentricity. You obviously, you need to see all of the compliance documentation. You need to see all of the tenancy documents, etc. The, the bank's going to want to see that anyway. Uh, and in fact, the one that we bought in Lanarkshire, we had to spend around about £60,000 before the purchase getting it up to, uh, to, to regulations for... Um, you know, the EICR mostly. So, yeah, we spent about yeah sixty grand on on electrical upgrades just to be able to get in a position to close on that deal. So, I'd say that's one thing that people need to be aware of when they're buying portfolios. There can be a lot of upfront cost. You know, your solicitors are not going to take on all the work involved in a portfolio deal without some sort of advanced cash because they know if it falls down, they're not going to get paid. Um, you know, there can be these front end investments that you need to make. You know, I think we were probably about 80 or 90 grand in to the Lanarkshire deal before, you know, before it closed. So, you know, there can be some serious cash to spend on the front end. There's, there's definitely a, a kind of level of risk, but again, we can take come from the level of cash that's been produced, right? So, I mean, I think uh, the cash flow on that Lanarkshire portfolio 
well, it's anything between fifteen and twenty thousand, you know, cash, you know. So the gross rental income is about thirty-five k a month. So if we do need to go in and replace a kitchen or a bathroom or, or whatever, you know, again, because we've taken a long-term view on on that portfolio, it's expected anyway. And and you know, these types of upgrades can be absorbed uh, by the cash flow. So mm, that makes sense. And you know, kind of before you mentioned investors and kind of joint venture partners, how do you tend to fund? all of your deals is there a kind of is there one way does it depend on the person or is it kind of combination of those two main ones uh well i mean you, you know we've, we've got investors we've got different types of investors i guess you know some people are looking for a first charge security yeah, it's quite straightforward you know other people are happy on uh, lending on an unsecured basis and then we've got our, our joint venture partners and you know we we set up all our joint venture agreements the same way it's a 50 50 split you know it, it, we set up an spv basically and it's 50 50 ownership it can't work for us and it can't can't work for them unless uh, you know we're all at the table you know so it's quite a fair but that way but yeah i mean the investment comes from a lot of different angles and how did the so you know a lot of people i suppose may look at you and say well you you know you're experienced you've got a huge portfolio you've got all this stuff going on investors are going to flock to you when investors first started sort of speaking to you, you know, are there any key lessons from that? I mean, were they all asking the same questions? Did they all want to know the same thing? Did they avoid, you know, you at the beginning because you were new to it? Like, yeah, maybe some wisdom on kind of like working with investors sort of when you first started to. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first point, I guess, you know, since we've moved into our new office and, and you've, you know, we've been posting a lot more aggressively on social media, really investors are flocking towards us. And, you know, there is this kind of corner we seem to have turned now, uh, which is really cool to see because there's just stuff flying at us uh, from all sorts of angles. But look, it wasn't like that in the beginning, you know, and we didn't have this type of flexibility and, and such a large fund now, you know, I think our funds up to about three and a half million quid, you know, private investment, but, you know, you don't just walk into a, a room and, and, and secure that on day one. There's a lot of resistance for, you know, when people are getting started, like there was when we were getting started. It's probably unlikely that somebody's going to give you an unsecured loan. Um, if you can get it, great, then, you know, it's much more flexible. But the easy kind of box to tick to provide the level of comfort for new people, you know, it's a new new relationship at the end of the day. The easy thing to do is just to give them security, you know, and if you give them a, you know, if you're buying something at, I don't know, it's worth 80 grand, you're buying it for 50 grand, you know, and say the investor only gives you 40 grand, right? You know, if, if they've got security against, they've got a 50-50 LTV first charge security on the asset that you're buying that, that you're about to go and spend another 10, 15 grand on, on upgrading it, you know, refurbing the property. So that type of thing can go a long way. Um, and, and investors, you know, they like the sound of that. They've got the confidence through the legal security. And then it, it's an easier kind of kickoff, you know, to, to get you working together. Mm, that makes sense. And you know what? That I love that you said that, you know, it, it sometimes it's as easy as giving security because, yes, an investor wants to know, you know, what rate it is and when they're getting it back, but they want to know that they're getting it back. You know, that's kind of a thing that I think people forget about on social media is that how are we showing them that they're going to get it back? And first charge, second charge, restriction, whatever it is, you know, can be a great way to do that. So with your portfolio being around 200 properties, now I look at mine with 12 properties and I think, you know what, the management, you know, I manage it myself and it's about 150 miles away. It is, you know, as passive as this can be, you know, like it's not like putting money in stocks and shares and sitting there, you know, it. there is something to do, but I would call it pretty passive. Now you have another level here. So 
how and you said before that yours is very passive and you have a lot of systems and processes tell me how 200 properties tell me how you've made that passive without giving away a huge chunk of your profit first and foremost we we have an agent and and we have a very very close working relationship with our agent so far as the majority of the properties that he manages are ours so you know we we didn't go to one of these national chains like Belvoir or whatever you know that are kind of known for charging quite a lot, but then, you know, on top of that, you've always got these excessive maintenance charges. And then every time you want to market a property, there's these huge charges that go on top of that. You know, we work on a straight 9% basis because of his size now, largely driven by us. He's having to add VAT, so it's slightly more now, but that's it, really. That's it. And, and we're now at a point where we're transitioning the management of a lot of our maintenance to our building company. So again, that's not really money leaving the house. So yeah, the, the whole portfolio was managed by one agent. We're not, we don't have multiple agents, even although there is a bit of spread, you know, we, we have, it's all in Scotland at the moment, but we have property in Aberdeen. We have, we have property down in, in Falkirk where we're based, the property in Lanarkshire. We're, we're about to take on a property that's maybe three and a half hours from our location. So there is a bit of a spread, but he's willing to manage that. And he uses sort of, you know, certainly when we're taking on a, a portfolio of, you know, 40 properties that, that are maybe three hours away, but, you know, he can, he can use a, a local contractor there to, to cover some of the, the issues. So, um, you know, the, there's this whole thing in, in property about having a gold mine area and sticking to your area. We wouldn't have been able to scale to this level if we did that. But the importance is, is having the, the support team that can cover your area. So before we buy a portfolio, the first question is, can our agent cover it? Because we don't want to be dealing with, with multiple agents. And, and we work very closely with him and make sure that's the case. So, you know, a lot of the, the management of the properties is, is taken off our hands. He operates on um, a system called SME, uh, which allows us to see in real time, you know, rents coming in you know, that the compliance is all there and taken care of, that when we've got uh, things that are due to be updated, when tenancies are coming to an end or, you know, when, when we have vacancies. So we're able to pull quite accurate live information from SME to see where we're at. So uh, again, we, we still have good visibility, even although it's managed. And as I said, we've got the building team now as well. So Usually when we're taking on a portfolio or, or even an individual purchase, we don't even really get involved in going to the property. You know, our, our building team will go in and price any work that needs to be done. When we close, they'll collect the keys and do the work. When they finish the keys and then pass to our agent. So, you know, again, uh, I mean, of the 200, I've maybe seen about 50 of our properties. I really haven't seen many of them because we've tried to treat this more like an investment business rather than a, a property business, so to speak. Because, you know, we've all been there at the start, Tedge, where you get too invested. You go and see a property, you like it, you think this is a great deal, I really want it, and then you pay too much. And, you know, we're trying to remove ourselves from that process and just systemize it. And, and Laurie and I spend most of our time finding deals, matching the finance and analyzing the numbers and, and, and everything else out with that is, is outsourced. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And that agent must love you um, having so many properties to manage. That is, I mean, that's just like, you know, that's awesome for a letting agent. And at the same time, they must be really good, you know, for you to give them everything. What are your thoughts on setting up your own lettings agency? I know a lot of people who have this you know, number of properties often do that. And I think, you know, for tax efficiency, it can be quite useful as well. 
Well, I mentioned my three properties that it took me 10 years to achieve uh, back in the day. And uh, I used to manage them myself, you know, mm. and that was enough to, to scar me for life. <laughs> uh, I have no, I mean, on, you know, everybody tells you the same story. You said you managed them yourself, fair play. Uh, you know, it's just not our bag ultimately, you know, we're at invest or investor kind of level, you know, I mean, okay, we could have some involvement in, you know, a lettings business, but hey, I mean, there's all this stuff that goes along with running a letting agency, you know, and it's very different from running an, a, a property investment business or a developments business or even a building company, you know, I don't know, time will tell. We're, at the end of the day, we're, we're entrepreneurial, so we're always open to any type of uh, idea like that, but I guess it's, um, it's, I think we we both see that as a bit more challenging, a bit more time consuming, really, for the level of return that that we might get. You know, and and I think that really is the big issue for me is I don't see it being hugely profitable. You know, even if I look at the amount of income that we generate from our own portfolio, when you start having to hire a few people to cover that, and, and it probably would be a good few people, then you know what's left. All you do is take on the the staffing issues and not having someone that's heavily invested in the lettings business, you know, they're not going to want to take calls on Christmas day when boilers break and all that sort of stuff. And and we certainly don't want to be getting those calls. You know, most people that I, I speak to that, you know, are fatigued with property or trying to get out, it's because of those things, you know, they've managed it themselves and, you know, it's, it's dragged them down with it. And, and property investment can be incredible. It can do incredible things and can be hugely passive, but you have to be careful how you structure it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, this is a common theme with what you're doing. And it's smart. It's doing what you, one, you enjoy and two, you're good at and then systemize and, and process drive the rest of it, which is what business is or should be about. I suppose I think a lot of us at the start, yeah, you know, we do everything. We're every person in our business and that's just a startup. But then over time, I think what you're doing here is sensible and is, you know, the kind of scale you're operating at is, I'd say the only way to kind of do it is to do the stuff you like and you're good at and get rid of the other stuff. So you don't just do buy-to-lets. And look, buy-to-lets are great. We all love them here. As you said, they can be as passive as, you know, it can be. But you're also doing commercial to residential conversions and you have five ongoing projects. So I suppose what got you into that how different is it to buy to lets? Well, you know, so we've, we've actually got six commercial and residential projects on the go just now, but there's five of them on, on Falkirk High Street, which is uh, kind of where we're based. The, the other one is a 10 bedroom, a 10 bedroom HMO can, uh, restaurant conversion, um, but that's in our buy to let portfolio. Uh, so we, we treat it slightly different, you know, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the more resi units we were doing, the, the bigger the properties got, the, the bigger the, the refurbs became. You know, and and <laughs> again, going back about a year or maybe a year and a half ago now, you know, we were sitting having a conversation uh, in one of our HMOs actually after I think doing our biggest project to date at that point, which was maybe about a 60 grand uh, spend uh, to create a six bedroom HMO. Um, and it was just quite interesting because it was, it was a new thing. We'd just completed it. You know, we had the tenants in and it was kind of like, well, hey, what's next? You know, do, do you think there's a, do you think there's some opportunity? on the, the kind of dead uh, high street space uh, that is in abundance right now, right? I mean, all the retailers are leaving, all the big shops that once were, they're only on the ground floors. You know, we, we decided to to go up to Falkirk High Street with a notepad and a pen one day and 
Alex started at one side and I started at the other and we, you know, we just took loads of notes about the, the, you know, the address numbers that we should check out or the building names. We went home, we, we pulled some titles, you know, we found some owners, we made some inroads and, um, yeah, I mean, we just ended up, uh, making some proposals. There was guys that were actively looking to sell. I mean, for anybody that's not looking at commercial or residential stuff yet, uh, highly recommend going in and, and seeing what's available in your area because this is this for me is I mean they're they're talking about this just now right but I, I see a big rollout of government support for for this type of thing because what we're going to do in the high streets you know I, I don't know um, you know everybody's shopping at these retail parks shopping online our vision for the high street is is smaller retail units on the ground floor living accommodation on the upper floors you know you naturally increase the footfall then. Uh, by bringing people into the high street. And then, you know, smaller retail units give smaller kind of boutique type uh, shops a chance to thrive and, and the atmosphere, you know, should be vibrant as well. So we just kind of got into it because we wanted to push ourselves on and, and we constantly want to push ourselves on, as can be seen from the, the growth of the, the group. But it was really just a, a kind of daft conversation one morning. We took the action to just go up, walk around, notepad and pen. And well, <laughs> the rest is, is history. You know, I, I don't know what we're going to do next because I, I think we're running out of property on Falkirk High Street now. But um, yeah, there's always scope to do more, right? And the more actions that you take, as crazy as they might seem, they always move you further, you know, towards your goal. And, and that's what we did. And obviously, given, you know, COVID, yeah, if the high street was dying before, I mean, it's just literally on the edge of death, you know, given COVID and Amazon online shopping, you can get anything most of the time same day, which is crazy to think about given five, 10 years ago, we couldn't. So for people, you know, listening, there are opportunities in commercial to resi because the world is changing. So I like that the kind of small kind of boutique shops, there's definitely a market for that. And yeah, they can't afford and don't want to pay for some big space when, you know, they just need a tiny little thing for like their, you know, I don't know, making jumpers for dogs or whatever um, hipster stuff they're doing. So with commercial to resi, and I suppose there's maybe a few different elements to this, but when you are looking at them, when you're, I suppose, considering the refurbishment or considering, well, how are we going to do this? What are the key differences between that and buy-to-let. I'm thinking about the listeners who are doing buy-to-let but want to do commercial to resi. What are some important factors they should consider which they may not know about? I think it's it's almost like learning a completely new type of investment. So I'm not sure that there's a huge amount that you can take from buy-to-let and apply to commercial resi other than the ability to finance deals. So you know, obviously financing is hugely important wherever you go, but you know, it's a different ball game. You have to, first of all, it depends what type of building that you're, you're trying to convert. So for instance, an office conversion to residential is likely to be much easier. Um, especially if a lot of the historic buildings on the high street, certainly most of the stuff we're doing is listed. So it would have had some history in, in residential uh, at some stage in its life. So converting those back to, um, residential while still meeting as much of the the current regulations uh, as you can is likely to be much less expensive than the type of development that we're doing at 156 High Street where it's a purpose-built commercial unit, um, never been residential. It's essentially a huge 
extension that's been put on the back of a listed building, that's going to be a much more expensive uh, endeavour. So, you know, trying to price up the the cost of renovation and, you know, repurposing the the building is, is going to be heavily dependent on, uh, you know the type, the type of commercial resi. So I, I don't think this one size fits all. There, you have to. You really, I mean, it helps for us having a building company, obviously. Uh, but you know, there's there's new contractors you're going to have to get used to dealing with uh, quantity surveyors, um, structural engineers. You know, you need to get a good solid architect on board as well that has a vision and, and a bit of patience with you at the start to come around and look at potential projects that you're looking at and say whether or not there's there's the likelihood of, of being able to do that conversion there's the council as well whether or not the planning's likely to be granted and you know at the moment we're quite fortunate because Falkirk Council are so desperate to get things moving in the high street that they are willing to be extremely flexible in the planning but normally you know there'll be all sorts of restrictions in a town centre like you, you know you need to have parking so so you can't get planning permission without some sort of parking plan which for us, Falkirk Council have uh, given us an exemption on. So there are a whole host of new challenges that you need to educate yourself on. Even down to buying it, you know, VAT might apply if it's been opted to tax. Sometimes they're not opted to tax and VAT doesn't apply. But, you know, you don't want to find that out when you're when you're closing on a project and you find out you've, you've all of a sudden going to find 20% more cash than you thought you had to uh, yesterday. So... You really, it's almost like going back to the drawing board and educating yourself again. Uh, Laurie and I read a book by Mark Stokes, Commercial Residential. You know, obviously a guy with a huge amount of experience and, and that, that is an excellent book. It's very technical, so it's not one to be doing on audio while you're in the gym on the treadmill. You know, you need to, you need to be paying attention to it, but, you know, huge amount of detail there. That was, that was really valuable for us. And obviously we're still learning. You know, we... we we have a lot of contractors who are educating us on as we go, and um, you know it's been a huge learning curve, and we're still learning. You know, we, we're only going into development on our first major project in, in the next month. We've we've done a couple of these um, office to HMO or, or restaurant to HMO conversion, but the big developments in the flats to sell will be you know starting in the next month. Hmm. That makes sense. And actually, yeah, I interviewed Mark Stokes last week or the week before um, after reading his book. So, yeah, very, very technical book. And yeah, it just goes through so much stuff you wouldn't really think about. So, yeah, good recommendation and good advice from yourselves there as well. And you mentioned you have a building company. So as well as doing, you know, the buy to portfolio, commercial to resi, you also have a building company. Now, a lot of investors and I myself uh, can attest to this 100 percent. I think the most difficult part and at least the most scary part um, before you do it and even when you're doing it is the refurb even a standard buy to let refurb like for your first time second time you know it's an interesting experience let's say that tradespeople are interesting to work with I'm going to keep it PC what made you set up a building company and how is it going? Tez, you know, the, the, everything you just said was the reason uh, we <laughs> set up a building company, right? I mean, we were just having so many problems and we've spoken about this before, you know, and it's like this, every time there's a problem, right? There's, it's like yin yang, man, you know, there's the, every time there's a problem, there's, a, there's an opportunity there somehow. And we were having so many issues with finding decent guys, reliable guys, you know, trustworthy, committed, whatever you want to call it. And Richie that we're in the, the building company with, you know, he'd done a couple of jobs with him before and we really liked him. And 
Again, we were just we were thinking bigger, we were thinking longer term, we were thinking entrepreneurial, and um, yeah, you know, again, it just towards the end of last year, I think we we hit a point where we had like ten, fifteen kind of refurbs on the go at the one time, and we were looking at the plan, thinking, shit, you know, how is this going to pan out? We're going to be really delayed, um, you know, we've not got the the workforce to do it, and then we've got all the commercial stuff starting, and and you know everything that goes along with that. So yeah, uh, you know, Rude Building Co was born out of a, a problem or various problems that we had at the time. But now, you know, we've, we've got our own uh, workshop and storage area. You know, we're making our own kitchens for the buy-to-lets, you know. Uh, we've got 20 guys working for us in the building co. And the most important thing about it all, really, from our perspective, is that, you know, we have control over what's going on. And, and it just brings a, a fantastic synergy to the group operations, you know, and, you um, just means we, yeah, we have better control. Ultimately, that's really what it comes down to. So it's, it's grown really fast. It's only going to grow more. You know, we've, we've not done any kind of land stuff yet, but that's a natural progression for the building company. So yeah, we're, we're only really just getting started with the building co as well, to be fair. Mm, I like that. And have you found that the kind of issues that we have as developers or investors getting good trades, have you found the same sort of issue when it comes to recruitment and getting them to turn up and do what they're supposed to? I think um, certainly at the start, we were helped by the fact that our, our business partner within the building company came with you know a bunch of trusted guys that he uses, and, and we already had a good relationship with him, so that was solid. But you know, it's grown quickly. You know, we we've just taken on an extra team because you know we feel there's three or four projects on the go, and we're about to get kicked into these larger development projects. So we've been trying to recruit, you know, another plumber, uh, another three joiners, uh, two painters over the course of the last couple of weeks. And it has been tough. I mean, the building trade just now is very strong. There's a lot of work. People are less inclined to become employees because they can they can do a bit more as, as subbies. So, yeah, I mean, it's not been easy, but we've managed to get the team now. We're pretty happy with everybody. And, and um, you know, I think it's a strong team that, that's going to take us forward well. Mm, I like that. I think in the future, I kind of look to do bigger scale developments, things like that. It's definitely something I'd consider if if I have the patience to deal with trades more than I have to. Um, anyways, what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property so far? Yeah, we were talking about this earlier and it's really funny to think back, you know, because we... We view, you know, mistakes are okay for us. And uh, again, we are happy to make a mistake because, you know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now if we hadn't made them. Uh, <laughs> we've definitely bought deals that maybe weren't great deals, you know, and we've certainly had uh, bad experiences when it comes to valuations, uh, which can completely kill a deal, you know. I don't know. Alex, any other ideas? I think for me, perhaps an over-reliance, you know, at the start, I mentioned we we have a close relationship with our agent and, you know, he's been critical to our growth for sure, but we were allowing him to sort of manage the the refurb side of it as well. So he was kind of taking the keys at the start, he was managing the refurb and he had like a a series of handymen as as well as a couple of junior painters and, you know, that was fine and, and we kind of justified that on the basis of its rental stock. So maybe the finish doesn't have to be sort of to the highest level. But, you know, ultimately, I think through the process, we've realized that you have to allow people to work on their skill set. So, you know, let your letting agent be a letting agent and deal with your refurb separately. We had a few projects that probably 
cost us a bit more than they should have because you know we didn't have the skilled tradesmen rattling through the work. It kind of took handymen a little bit longer to get it done. We probably didn't get the best finishes we could have on, on some of the other stuff. But, you know, we've learned from it and the building company now is taking on that role and, you know, it's working fantastically. Mm. I think also we, in, in the initial stages, and it's it's not to say that maybe it's a mistake, maybe it's not, I don't know, you know, but we've, we kind of, for the first year we were, we were operating, we kind of hid away from social media, you know, because of our jobs, you know, and, and we didn't want to be seen to be out there kind of taking the piss too much. So we didn't really post that much. We definitely held back on uh, kind of marketing ourselves and um, outsourcing certain things, you know, but you know, we're in there, we're in the kind of growth phase, right? So it's like when anybody's starting up anything new, you've kind of got to like grow through that, you know, we're, we're at a point now where we outsource absolutely everything. You know, we have people doing marketing for us and, and all this type of stuff, but I think we, we did kind of hold back on that, even with likes of social media and, you know, making sure we didn't uh, get sacked uh, too early, you know, uh, we've, we've held back on these kind of things. Now, was that a mistake or not? I don't know. Um, because I, I think you have to play the game a little bit, you know, to allow you to, to get you to where you want to be. We probably could have been more aggressive with that, but ultimately, you know, again, I don't think we'd be doing what we're doing now if we hadn't have played the game the way we've played it so far. So, hmm. No, I appreciate that. And if you could have dinner, and I suppose this is individual with you, if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you eat? Well, oh, I don't know. Who would I have dinner with? Um, Beyonce. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm there. Yep. Yeah. yeah, Beyonce's cool. Just one. I mean, she, you don't need anyone else. It's Beyonce, right? So- no, I take my wife because you know she likes Beyonce too. So, <laughs> <laughs> what would that eat? I like uh, surf and turf, man. You know, I love my fillet steaks, mm. and I like big juicy prawns. So, <laughs> um, love it. Probably some like ancient, like old presidents, because mm. I just think that would be a really interesting kind of topic of conversation to relate current life to you know, the time when they were president. That'd be cool. I'm doing this completely off the cuff. so uh, No, I like it. It's an honest answer. I like it. I think for me, well, you know, it's like I, I read a book and then all of a sudden I get a bit obsessed by some of the principles in it. So I, um, you know, obviously Kiyosaki probably started all of this for, for Laurie and I you know, rich dad, poor dad, even anybody that comes on our training courses, we strongly recommend they read that book before they even come because, you know, it's just so fundamental. Uh, so Robert Kiyosaki would obviously be a great guy, big fan of Tony Robbins as well. You know, love to sit down and, and have a chat with him, although I'd probably be quite intimidated at the other side of the table. I think that'd be quite an intense dinner. We were kind of, we're at a stage now where we quite, like to get you know obviously we're being mentored by quite a few of our sort of subcontractors particularly on the commercial residential stuff and the buy let it's like we've discovered this phase two of buy let which is awesome but you know i really like to find someone who's on another level who's on the next level who made it to phase three i don't know many people that have got thousands of properties but if there was someone i'd love to sit down and have dinner with them and, and, and start to understand how you know how the next level looks yeah, you know, we talked earlier on about the 100 property target not being big enough, so we changed it to 300, but now we're kind of getting too close, so 300 is no longer uh, kind of big enough, you know, so that the new target is 1,000 properties. Now, Alex and I are both 36. Um, I'm 37 next week, though, so call it 37. So we've got, say, three years by the time we're 40. 
to hit a thousand properties, and that's the new the new objective. Uh, we've actually we're, we're taking on a, a business development manager. We've got an admin start, and you know we're thinking big. The, one of the objectives of the, the BDM will be to source opportunities in, in all around the UK. So currently, we're, we've only been buying in, in Scotland. We're definitely going to be looking for opportunities in Northeast England and Northwest England. And, you know, why, looking at what we've done in, in the last kind of two and a half years, knowing what we know now and all the, all the strategy that we apply, why can we not go and hit that target, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit out there, but again, it will push us to take different actions and that's the new target. So yeah, hit us up in a few years and uh, we'll see how we've, we've done. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, listen, when you hit a thousand, let's come back and talk about that because that's going to be, that's going to be crazy. And I mean, look, I have no doubt it's, it's going to happen. You know, you're, you're making it happen and you've done, you've done epic so far. So um, yeah, a thousand prop. I was just trying to think if I know anyone or know of anyone. I think the most I know is someone who had eight a hundred was it 800 something crazy like that i kind of knew of them through various people but yeah they'd been doing it for like you know as many years as like we've been alive they must have had some story though well yeah i can imagine yeah especially from back in the day to now so um guys thank you so much for coming on the podcast if people want to get hold of you or learn more about your training i'll put it in the show notes below but um yeah what's the best way for people to say hi to you and get hold of you yeah, sure. So, I mean, we're, we're all over social media, you know, so Facebook, LinkedIn and, and all of that. But I mean, you'll get everything you, you need from the website, which is www.rudgroup.co.uk. But RUD is R-E-W-D, stands for Real Estate Wealth Development. So R-E-W-D group.co.uk. You can hit us up from there. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Nice one. Cheers, Tej. Thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.